Amen. Well, you can be seated. My name is Jamie Ingram. I am the worship and missions pastor here at the church. If I can make a little just confession before we get going, okay? When I agreed to do this, when Steve came and asked me if I would take this passage, I did not know that the Diamondbacks were going to be in the World Series. All right, and I am a huge Diamondbacks fan. I'm a huge Arizona sports fan. If you've been around Arizona for any length of time, you know that is a wasteland more often than it is the promised land. It is difficult. It is challenging. It is not easy. I, I don't, almost don't know what to do with myself right now. We have the Suns and the Diamondbacks, two good teams. I mean, that never happens. I was trying to explain what it's like to my son, Peter. He's nine. He's an eternal optimist. I mean, there's a lot of things going against him understanding Arizona sports. But I was trying to explain to him what it was like. And fortunately, the Diamondbacks did it for me in game one because they were up by two runs going into the bottom of the ninth. They gave up the lead. They gave up the victory. And as my son was sitting there, the despair in his eyes, I said, that's it. You got it. That's what it's like to be an Arizona sports fan. You know, almost to the point where I kind of wonder sometimes, like, why do we root for sports teams? I mean, even people not from Arizona, right? It's like years of turmoil and trial and struggle and not quite getting there, and for what? Just maybe once every, you know, Diamondbacks, 20 years getting to make it to the mountaintop and having joy and excitement and all of those things. But in between is a lot of struggle. I will say I was thinking about the Diamondbacks when I was writing uh, this message and thinking about where we're at in Revelation because when you think about the book of Revelation, it is all leading to an amazing, glorious, wonderful finish. The return of Jesus, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the millennial reign, eternity with God, and just incredible but to get there, there's going to be a lot of turmoil, a lot of muck, a lot of difficulty, a lot of trial. In the last couple of weeks, we've been wading into some of those things and what's going to be going on, talking about those first four seals with the Antichrist coming. He's going to promise peace, but war is going to follow him. Famine, death. And I wish I could tell you that we were at that point where now things are going to start getting good and amazing, but we're not. And so as we dive into the fifth and sixth seals today, get ready for more yuck, muck, turmoil, and trial. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 6, be in verse 9. First four seals, the picture that's in view is earth and the things that are going on here. Now as we come to our fifth seal, John is going to turn his attention to heaven. And he says in verse 9, chapter 6 of Revelation, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So I want to make sure we understand the scene and the picture here. This is taking place in the heavenly throne room. And it almost seems as though the throne room in which this is taking place is kind of a combination of throne room and tabernacle. John is in God's presence. There's some debate here on if the altar that is pictured is one that Israel maybe would have been familiar with. There was two altars that they used at the temple and the tabernacle when they were uh, giving sacrifices before the Lord. The first was the altar of burnt offering. This is where they would bring the animal sacrifices and the blood would pour down. And so some would say that blood pouring down kind of is symbolic of these souls that are under the altar crying out. Others would argue that this is more the altar of incense. This is where people would go to offer prayers to God. And this is maybe picturing the saints' prayers ascending to God. Uh, If I had to pick one of those, I'd probably go with the altar of incense. Uh, But the truth is, we don't really know. This could be a heavenly hybrid of both of those things. It could be its own. Uh, I think maybe what's more important here than the altar itself is the souls that are under the altar. That's really what's in view. And the question that you have to ask when it comes to these souls is, who are they? And I'm going to argue with you that the souls that are in view that are making this plea to the Lord are tribulation martyrs. The souls in view here are believers that have been killed during the time of tribulation. Take a look at verse 9. It says, The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, on its own, if you were just reading that one verse, you could argue that this is any martyr throughout any period of history that has died because of their belief in Jesus Christ. But look at their plea in verse 10. They cry to the Lamb, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The implication here is that the ones that had killed them, that had slain them, the ones that had called for them to be killed, the ones that had come against them, are still alive and well and walking through the tribulation. So now this narrows our time frame greatly for who these martyrs can be. They have to be martyrs that have died during the tribulation period. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks, or maybe you're just like me and you're an inquisitive person, you like to ask questions and just kind of make sure you understand, the question that immediately comes up then is, how are there believers still on the earth if the rapture of the church has already happened? If the church has already been raptured, then who are these believers that are being killed? I think the key thing to remember is that when we share the gospel with people today and they come to faith in Jesus, we are not the ones that are forcing them into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts and bringing them to that saving faith and acceptance of Jesus Christ. And that same God who is living and active today is going to be living and active during the time of tribulation. And so we don't know exactly how he's going to bring all these people to faith in Christ, but we know that he is able to do it. 
In fact, it's kind of fun to think about, right? The church gets raptured out. I, I, I think back to 9-11. What did people do in times of crisis when everything is falling apart? They came to church. This time in the, in the tribulation is going to be very similar. There are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There is going to be famine. There is going to be death. People are going to be in crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those people showed up at church buildings. And maybe they find some people there, people that hadn't come to faith before the tribulation that said, oh, I know exactly what this is. They're coming to church. They've accepted Christ. Maybe there's people showing up here and the building's empty with the doors unlocked and they're coming in and they find a Bible. They pick it up and they begin to read and they say, this is true. I want this, Lord. I want to accept you as my Savior. And the truth is, in today's digital age, they don't even have to come into the building. They can just pick up their phone. They can read the Bible on their phone. They can watch a sermon. They can listen to a podcast. They can hear the good news of Jesus Christ that is left behind. And they can respond and become believers, even during the tribulation. I think... During this period, God may even use things like dreams and visions to draw people to himself. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's come to faith and God used a dream or a vision to draw them to himself, but they're pretty incredible, pretty powerful testimonies. The point that I'm making here is that God can and will be working during the tribulation time to bring people to himself. God didn't need us before. We get to be a part of what he's doing he won't need us after the rapture either. He is still able. The next question you have to ask is, okay, these people have come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, but why are they being killed? Well, they're being killed because they are sharing the gospel, because they're sharing their faith. The gospel has always been divisive, and it's always had the ability to incite violence against believers who are being faithful to what God has called them to do. In fact, I don't know if you're on our, our prayer emails that go out, but we got one from some of our missionaries in India this week. They were called before a council, and a riot was incited against them. And basically, they were told that if they meet today, if they meet this Sunday, that they are going to get beat by this riot for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It still happens today. Now you imagine a world that's looking for someone to blame in the midst of crisis, and Christians become an easy scapegoat. And so as they're out there proclaiming truth, people are looking at them and saying, you're the problem, not the solution, and they're coming after them. It's interesting, though, because I think that during the time of tribulation, it's going to even be more than that. I don't think you're just going to get martyred for sharing your faith. I think you're going to get martyred just for being a believer. The idea of that word testimony in this passage is to refer to those that had received from the faithful witness and which continued to hold fast their testimony. In other words, some will be martyred just for the mere fact that they have allegiance to Jesus during this time. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. He said, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Just knowing that people love Jesus will be enough for non-believers to lash out in anger and violence during this time. So we kind of set the scene. We know where we are. We know who's making the plea. But let's look at the content of their plea. 
And specifically, what I want you to think about is what does it look like when people are martyred in the New Testament? Are they crying out for vengeance or for grace from God? Because I would argue that they're usually crying out for grace. Think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's getting stoned and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, when he's on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Grace is not the tenor of our plea here in Revelation. This is a cry for vengeance. Look at chapter 6, verse 10 in Revelation. And these tribulation martyrs cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They cried out. The indication here is that this was a sharp, singular, definite appeal. Here in Revelation, the time of grace has ended, and now God is bringing judgment upon an unbelieving world. And I want to be clear. These are not believers coming before God and saying, God, you messed up, or God, you're not doing what you ought to do. They know that God is going to do what he says. Instead, they come to him with a question. How long, O Lord, until you are going to take your vengeance on this world? God is a God of justice. He will not let the unrighteous and the wicked go unpunished. Take a look at the Lord's response, though. Revelation 6, 11. He gives them three things. There was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Each of these tribulation martyrs is given a white robe. I like how John MacArthur put it. He said, these long, brilliant white robes were a reward of grace, symbolizing God's gift of eternal righteousness, blessedness, dignity, and honor. They symbolize all the glory that redeemed saints will enjoy in heaven. It's almost like he's saying, hey, well done. Thank you for following me here. Enjoy my righteousness. He gives them a white robe, but he also gives them rest. The idea of rest here is not just having peace from turmoil and trial of earthly living and struggle. It's not just about ceasing the cry for vengeance. It's more than that. It's a call for these saints to rest in blessedness. I don't know about for you, I've got four kids. When I think of rest, what I think of is getting 20 minutes to take a nap before I get back to the struggle. That's not what's in view here. The idea is you've been suffering, you've been working, you've been living for me. Now enter and enjoy my rest. Enjoy the blessedness of being with me. Enjoy the bliss and the peace of heaven. What an amazing gift to give these tribulation saints. He gives them a white robe. He gives them rest. The last thing he gives them is a time frame. He says a little while longer until the number would be completed also. The Lord tells these tribulation martyrs, you don't have to worry. I am a just God. I am going to pay back the things that were done to you. But it's going to be a little while longer. And I think it's interesting that he gives them the time frame, and it's based on the fact that there are going to be more martyrs. 
In essence, what he's saying is there are more people that are going to give their lives for the name of Jesus before I take my wrath on them. Hmm. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? There are going to be more people who lose their lives before God's vengeance is given. Pretty intense. This fifth seal. Believers who've been murdered for their faith, crying out for God's vengeance, knowing that he will judge those that took their lives. But now our scene shifts back to earth and we see God begin to dole out cosmic and terrestrial calamity. There's a lot of services that we do. I didn't know if I should put such tough words in there for myself, but I gave it a shot. Cosmic and terrestrial calamity. It's the sixth seal. Take a look at Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. John says, I looked when the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You know, I'd love it if we had all the time in the world to just really dig in on this stuff. We don't. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just give an overview of the calamity. And then I want to talk about maybe what's one of the more debated pieces about this particular seal, which is, is this literal or is this symbolic? And lastly, I just want to take a brief look at humanity's response, because to me, it's absolutely shocking. But let's start with this overview. And I think if we're going to focus on something, it's that great earthquake that kind of sets everything off. Jesus referred to coming earthquakes during the Olivet Discourse. He says in Matthew 24, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The term that's used in Revelation is seismos megas, a great earthquake. One commentator said the English word earthquake is not quite adequate to describe this seal because the heavens are shaken along with the seas and the dry land. One suggested rendering is convulsions. Literally, the earth itself is going to begin to convulse. It's going to be a great earthquake unlike anything that we've ever seen on the earth before. And we know that when earthquakes come, it's not just the earthquake that happens. There's going to be volcanoes erupting. There's going to be tsunamis flooding the land. There is going to be all sorts of chaos and death and destruction. And to be honest, I was kind of reading this, and I'm going, I don't think my house is going to make it through this thing. You know, I'm sure the builders tried, but this sounds crazy. There's going to be buildings and houses and homes crashing down around the people that are in them. It's going to be mass chaos. And in the midst of all that, the sun will become black as sackcloth made of hair. The picture here of sackcloth made of hair envisions a black garment made of coarse cloth. 
The clothing was worn as a visible expression of mourning and despair. And that's really going to be accurate for what's going on here on earth. Remember, these are people that have walked through war and famine and death, and they've made it through all that, and now the earth itself is beginning to convulse, and they're going to have their homes falling down around them. There's going to be soot and ash everywhere in the air, and they run outside, and maybe the sun will even just give me a little warmth right now, and it's going to be like it's covered up. It says that the whole moon will become like blood. Many suggest that this is a total lunar eclipse. Considering everything else that's going on with the ash and soot and everything in the air, it's not hard to imagine the color of the moon turning to a deep copper as though made of blood. I think it's interesting that it says the stars of the sky will fall to earth like, you know, figs in a windstorm falling off the tree. That word for stars in this passage uh, can have the meaning of a lot of different types of celestial bodies. It can refer to probably, in my opinion, a meteor shower or uh, cosmic debris, comets, the asteroids, that kind of thing falling down to earth. So literally when people look up in the sky, they see shooting stars, but these aren't shooting stars passing by. These are shooting stars coming down. Nowhere is safe. No one is safe. It says the sky will split apart. I don't think this refers, uh, at least not to the total destruction of the Earth's atmosphere, but I do think the Earth's atmosphere is going to be greatly impacted. The skyline is going to be changed. It's like ripping a scroll in the middle and it's rolling up to two different sides. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 34. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Lastly, he talks about mountains and islands moving. Going back to that great earthquake, it's almost like these tectonic plates all over the earth are going to be rolling and moving and changing and shifting. It might even change the entire topography, geography of the earth as we know it. So a lot of people look at this passage, they see the mass destruction that's going on, and they say, it can't be. It just can't be. Maybe it's symbolic. Maybe what's being referred to here is more political. Maybe it's economic. To me, the key for why I think that this passage is literal is verse 15. Because you see people there. You see people of all different places and statuses in life. And they're not just hanging out going, okay, this stuff's happening, no big deal. You know, they're not Americans. They're not threatening to move to Canada, right? This, they're heading for the literal hills, to hide because of everything that's going on. And you and I, having just lived through a pandemic, we may be in a better position to understand why this is literal than a lot of other people in past things. Because here's the truth. I do think that the world in this time is going to be in political, economic, and social upheaval. But I think it's going to be in those things from those first four seals. Remember, the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to promise peace. But what's he going to bring? The second seal, war. Steve talked about this a little bit last week, but what does war bring along with it just besides death and wanton destruction? It brings disease. In fact, he had a great point that during the Civil War, more people died from disease than being shot or killed in battle. Well, we know what it's like for, to see a world filled with disease, don't we? 
to see people getting sick all over the place and not knowing how to stop the spread of everything that's going on. There's going to be famine. You're going to go into the grocery store and you're going to be looking for chicken and instead of there not being much chicken and it's triple the price, there just isn't chicken. There's going to be death on a scale we've never seen before in the world. And having watched what people do when death and disease is rampant, when prices are getting sky high, I kind of feel like we know a little bit what, what people would do, right? They would go into their houses. They'd become antisocial. In fact, I was reading this passage, and I'm like, you know, John, you forgot that mental health is going to be at an all-time low during this period. Anxiety is going to be through the roof. We've never experienced something like this before. It is going to be devastating to people's mental health. I could see them all going into their houses trying to get away from everything that's going on. And then the sixth seal is open. And suddenly that thing that was the one place of safety is destroyed. It's gone. It's crushed. You think about fallout shelters. People used to build and just, you know, place to be safe. And those may be a real thing that people would want to run into during this time. And when you don't have that because you live in suburban America, you're heading for the hills. Heading for the hills. So me, it's, to me, it's, it's not a question of is, is this symbolic or literal. It's literal. This is happening. This is destruction on a scale we've never seen before. In fact, to me, it's not really shocking that it's literal. To me, what's shocking is the response of humanity to everything that's going on. Take a look at verse 15. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Can you imagine this? Unbelievers are coming out of their houses. They're looking up to the sky. They're pointing. They're saying, this is God. God is the one that's doing this. They're not, they're not confused about it. They're not unclear. They know who's doing it. This is God, the one true God. But their next response is not to say, save me. It's not to say, I'm sorry. It's not to say, God, I need you. Their response is to turn to the mountains, the very things that are shaking and trembling and crumbling all around them, and say, you know what? Kill me or hide me, but it's better than facing the living God. Kill me or hide me, I would prefer that than having to stand before God. That's their response. There's no class or societal divide here. This is including kings of the earth, great men and commanders, rich and strong, slave and free, all flee from God instead of coming to him and begging for salvation. Aren't you encouraged this morning? This is tough stuff, isn't it? It's difficult. And I was reading these seals and thinking through this this week, and it's kind of like, well, what do you really bring to bear on this for the church? Because so much of this is just ugly. It's just tough. It's just difficult. 
But I had a few things that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart to share today, and I hope they encourage you. First one is this. I just want to encourage you, church. Please pray for salvation of unbelievers and the unbelievers in your life today. Pray desperately. Pray desperately that they would come to know Jesus that they would hear the good news of the gospel and say, I'm living for myself. I need to accept Christ as my savior. Okay, I think a great takeaway from all this stuff is that we don't have to go through the tribulation. That's a great takeaway. Lord, thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm reading through this passage and I gotta be honest with you, I don't even think I'd wish this on my worst enemy, the stuff that's gonna be going on in the tribulation. And if I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, why am I wishing it on my neighbors and friends and relatives? By just saying, you know what, it's too awkward. I don't want to talk to them. You know what? They're making their own. We need to be desperate to see people that we love, that we care, that we know, who don't know Jesus, to come to faith today. It's still God that's the only one that can do it. God working in their hearts, them choosing to accept Christ as their Savior. But we can pray desperately for them that they would come to know Jesus today. I can't imagine a world in which people can see all of this destruction that God is bringing about on the earth and they wouldn't just turn to him, especially if they know it's God. Their hearts have become so hardened to the truth. And when we have people in our life they haven't come to faith in Christ. And I don't know if this is true in every sense, but it's gotta be at least some people that maybe their hearts even would be softer today than they would be on that day. Let's pray desperately for the salvation of unbelievers in our lives. Second takeaway or encouragement I wanna give you, it's gonna sound a little weird, just stick with me. I wanna encourage you to be in awe of God. And maybe awe is not the right word. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's reverence. Kind of mixing those all together. Humans like to puff themselves up. They like to think that they're greater than they really are. And I don't know why, but for, for some reason, one of the ways that we do this is we like to be puffed up about how good we are at killing each other and destroying each other and creating general destruction on the earth. When God steps into the picture and he begins to pour out these seals later the bowls and the trumpets, we are gonna see something that's gonna be incredibly humbling to us. We're gonna see what it looks like when God judges the earth. And it is gonna be terrifying, and it is gonna be scary. But at the same time, if we take a step back, to be honest, it's kind of awe-inspiring how powerful and mighty God is. The one through whom the very earth was created, who holds it all together. When he begins to pour out his judgment on that earth, it is going to be something to behold. And that same God who is so powerful and mighty is the one who loves us, cares for us, and holds us in the palm of his hand. My last encouragement. I just want to encourage you, church, to glorify God wherever he calls you to, whatever he asks you to do. As believers, everything that we do ought to be to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But I think we know that in this life, sometimes God asks us to do difficult things. 
He asks us to love the unlovely. He asks us to be faithful when we just want to give up. He asks us to go to a place, places sometimes that we don't want to go to. I mean, in this very passage that we've been reading, we see God asking people and saying, there's going to be more people that will be martyred for me, that will literally give their lives to serve me. I look around in a room like this, I don't think most of us are probably going to be called to get martyred. But what I can tell you is that every person in this room, God's asked you to do something, to bring glory to Him, to be faithful to Him where you are. Maybe you have that person in your life, the Lord's tugging on you just to be praying for Him, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Are you being faithful to what God has called you to do? Are you bringing him glory in your life? Are you cutting out the things in your life that don't bring glory to God? Are you living for him today? Let's be faithful to bring glory to God in our lives. Tribulation is going to be a tough time. People will be martyred for their faith and their souls are going to cry out to the Lamb to judge an unbelieving world. A world in disarray from war and famine and loss of life will face great catastrophe. These are the birth pangs of the tribulation. But all of it, all of it is leading to that great and glorious day when Jesus comes back. So church, today... Let's be in awe of God. Let's rejoice in Him. Let's share the good news with anyone who will listen. Let's live on mission. Let's not stop until that day that we see Jesus face to face in eternity. There is no better way for us to, as believers today to get ready for the calamity of the tribulation than to be found living on mission today. So let's set our eyes on Jesus and let's live for Him with all we've got. Let's pray.